We are going to be in chapter 8 of Revelation once again. So if you have your Bible, please go ahead and open up to there, the last book of your Bible. This is our 33rd sermon in this book, so you know where it's at by now. So both the sixth seal and the seventh seal on the scroll we've been looking at over the past few chapters have been concerning the final judgment, the day of the Lord in which the wrath of the Lamb will be poured out. It's a future event that coincides with the parousia, the second coming of Christ. If, if I said to you guys, or what is the parousia? You would say? The second coming of Christ. The second coming of Christ. Good, yes. We want to understand the, the Christian doctrinal terms that the church has used for millennia. So the parousia just means the second coming. Um, but what sets this seventh seal apart from the sixth is that we're introduced to two elements of this final judgment. Silence. Silence for about half an hour which we talked about last week, but it's also silence and prayer. And we're told that prayer, specifically the prayer of the saints, has a role to play in the acts of God. And as you're probably already aware, based off of your small group time, tonight we're going to be considering in more detail the topic of prayer. So let's read the text and then we'll pray. God's word beginning at verse 3 in Revelation 8. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for this time to be together and to open up your word together. As so many saints in history past have done as well. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would impart to us understanding, that we would think rightly about prayer. Lord, we know that every religion that exists even has some sort of aspect of prayer, but we know that it is prayer which is done through the Spirit to the Father and in the name of Jesus, which, which you hear, the prayer of the saints. And so help us understand the importance of prayer and help us to think about this from a biblical standpoint. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, John Calvin once defined prayer as the chief exercise of faith. Faith looks to Christ. Faith seeks to obey. Faith rests in the completed and finished work of Christ on our behalf. But for Calvin, for for all the things that the gift of faith does for us, the most important way we exercise that faith, that is then to say the most important thing we can do as a Christian, really, is pray. That's quite the statement, isn't it? It's not to say that other things aren't important, but that prayer is the most important. Because in a sense, prayer goes before everything else that we do, or it should at least. If we're thinking rightly and humbly before the Lord God, prayer is something that should precede everything else that we are doing. So I I wonder, you know, is that how you think of prayer? Is prayer that important to you? John Bunyan said that prayer ought to always come first in our lives. And then he says that we can do more than pray after we have prayed, but we cannot do more than pray until we have prayed. That, That makes sense, right? In other words, after we pray, we can do more things and we should do more things. But if we don't pray before the other things, then we're really starting in a bad place. That prayer is something that should precede the other Christian activities that we do, whatever it is. We've talked about that before even. 
A prayer is a gauge of our spiritual life, revealing the health of it. It is the breath of our soul, and, and through it we commune with God, who communicates with us through his written word. And Revelation 8 is a good place for us to pause and consider the value of prayer as we continue to make our way through this book, which is instructing us and encouraging us in the Christian life. Because prayer, as we read, as we'll see a little bit here as well too, it plays an important part in the revealing of God's word here in Revelation. In a way, even, even, prayer is a necessary means for God to accomplish his will and his purposes. Our, Our praying certainly isn't empty words, like, like we're just talking to some void or something like that. But what this text tells us is that our prayer is like a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord, and it's being brought up to Him, and our prayers rise up before Him, and God hears them, He knows them, and then we're even made to see them being answered as God acts in verse 5, which we talked about last week. Now, there is a lot that we could say about prayer. I mean, a few sermons on the topic wouldn't exhaust everything. Uh, There are whole volumes that have been written about the topic of prayer. But for tonight, I want us to think of three things mostly. And even here, we're only scratching the surface. Um, But I want us to think of the purpose of prayer, some pet peeves in prayer that I have, and then the people of prayer. So let's consider the first thing being the purpose of prayer. Really, the purpose of prayer in light of what we see happening here with the scroll that has been in view since chapter 5. So there's this scroll that was in the right hand of the Father on the throne, and no one was able to open it. You remember, that is until the Lamb who was as slain, he's able to take it, and he takes the scroll out of the Father's hand, and then he starts to open its seals one by one. And in so doing, in opening up these seals upon the scroll, We have seen that the Lord Jesus is behind and he is fulfilling the eternal decrees of God which come to play out in the seals. These first four seals, remember they were described as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The fifth seal and the the fifth seal being a vision of what's happening in heaven. The sixth and the seventh seal concerning the events of the last day, Christ's second coming. And the fact that Jesus is the one who is opening them all, and he's the only one that was able to open it and to, and to reveal all this, is significant. All the events that are happening, which are being described by the vision of the opening of the seals, they're all being set in motion. They are being fulfilled, these eternal decrees of the sovereign Lord, by the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that's the significance of him opening them. These events are what God has purposed to happen and what comes from them as well. That's why only the Lamb, the Lord Jesus, was able to open the scroll and take it from the Father's hand. Remember, John is witnessing this nearly 2,000 years ago now, but the events contained in the scroll describe the time period in between Jesus' first and second coming, perhaps even before that. But it describes all those events. And so then what is the purpose of praying? Being that God has decreed everything, and here's this scroll which is opening up, which talks about, from John's point of view, even future events. What's the purpose of praying? Why does prayer matter in the light of the unfolding of God's eternal decrees? Why should we pray when we see that these events will happen because God has decreed them and since the Lord Jesus is sovereign over them? I mean, if God is sovereign, and he is, and, he's discre- and he has decreed what will happen, and he did, then why pray? What's the point? Isn't everything going to happen anyway? Well, those questions are answered in this passage. By having this section here in the seventh seal, we are to understand that 
even our prayers are included in the eternal decrees of God. God has not only decreed from all eternity what will happen, right? So think about, you know, the plagues that were mentioned, the, the, the things the, the four horsemen would do, the, the fact that Jesus comes again. These things are all decreed. They're going to happen. They have been happening, except for the second coming, of course. But in light of that as well, he has also decreed that our prayers are the means by which events take place. As the Second London Baptist Catechism or Confession says, chapter 3, uh, it says, God's eternal decree establishes the means by which he accomplishes purposes. So in other words, even the fact that we pray is somehow decreed, not somehow, but is actually decreed by God. God has desired that we would be a people who pray, and through our prayers and the answering of our prayers, he has even decreed the outcome as well, that they both go together. So in other words, in this case, that means that we see here these prayers of the saints, that, that our prayers are the means by which God is acting. He's decreed the end, which is the second coming of Christ, and he's also decreed the means to the end as well. And so prayer is an important means. So a means is just a secondary cause. God is the first cause in decreeing and saying and desiring what will happen. Think of it perhaps most easily in the account of Revelation, or excuse me, in the account of Jesus' crucifixion in Acts chapter 2. This is God, so God decreed that the Son of God, Jesus, would go to the cross to die for sins. But then look, listen to what he says as well in chapter 2 in Peter's uh, sermon. It says, This Jesus, and this is verse 23, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So the means by which Jesus was crucified were these lawless men, the hands of these lawless men. He decreed the means, and he also decreed the end, that is, Jesus' death upon the cross. Both of them are in God's plan. And so what we're learning here in Revelation chapter 8 is that our prayers actually are a means that God also decrees as well. The prayer of the saints, right before God vindicates his name and judges the inhabitants of the earth, right at the time of the second coming, we're made to understand that it is our prayers that are before God right before it all happens. It's as if that what he is, it's as, it's as if he's thinking of our prayers about the prayers that the saints have offered over you know, the last millennia, the culmination of all the church's prayers are on the mind of Yahweh right before his judgment of those, well, of those who don't pray, who don't truly pray. And so prayer matters. I can't possibly overstate this this evening, the importance of prayer. It is the means by which God is accomplishing his eternal decree, all the way up to the point even of the second coming. So think of the simplicity of this even at the end of the first letter to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22, Paul closes out this letter saying, If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. That verse is a prayer. And that last portion of it is to be especially noted here. Our Lord, come. That's just one verse in the Greek. It's the word Maranatha. You've probably heard of that said before. It's a prayer. It's a simple but deep prayer for the Lord Jesus to come again. To come again to consummate his kingdom. To usher in the eternal age. To usher in the new heavens and the new earth. 
a prayer certainly that we would think would be in view here in Revelation 8. The Lord Jesus is going to come again, and God has decreed that we should all pray that he comes again. But there is even more in view than just that. It's, I think, actually all of our praying, the collective amount of all the prayers of the saints ever. That is a, a lot of prayers. And the reason we think that, because note, it's not just the prayers of the saints that we first saw at the end of chapter 6. If you have your Bible open, you can kind of look at that section, the last paragraph, really 12 through 17 in chapter 6. There was also talking about the last judgment. And, or excuse me, no, right before that, actually, the fifth seal in chapter 9. That's where the saints who are gathered underneath the altar and they're calling out to the Lord. Chapter 6 in Revelation 7. Same page as Revelation 8 for me at least. In chapter 6, under the altar, the souls of those who have been slain for the word of God, they cried out with a loud voice. So that's praying, right? They're talking to God. They're crying out to God. But in chapter 6, it's just the voice of those that are under the altar. But in chapter 8, it's more than that. In chapter 8, verse 3, it's the prayer of all the saints that we read of. Our prayers, the praying that we do, those prayers are intimately bound up with what is going on in the world, throughout the happenings in the world. And the placing of them here, along with the golden censer, you know what a censer is, right, I hope? A censer... We're Protestants, so maybe not. But like if you were in a Roman Catholic church or an Eastern Orthodox church, there'd be these, these metal, usually metal, box type things that you hang on a rope or a chain and it has holes in it and has the incense in it and you swing it back and forth and the smoke comes out of it. It's a, it's a sensor. And so we're reading there's this golden sensor which is then used to take five, that has our prayers, smoke in it and is with the prayers and they're offered up before the Lord. And then after that, they use the censer and they put fire from the altar in it and they cast it then down upon the earth. And that tells us, um, and, and that's when the, the peals of thunder and the lightning and that eschatological earthquake happen. And this is describing the second coming of Christ. And so all of that tells us that the, co- the coinciding of the prayers being associated with the censer and the incense and then the, and then the censer being used to throw down judgment upon the earth, symbolic for judgment upon the earth, it tells us that the prayers of the saints are part of the execution of God's eternal decrees. Prayer, it's not about changing God's mind. That's impossible. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Numbers 23, 19. William Barclay says, it, is, it so often happens that in prayer we are really saying, thy will be changed, when we ought to be saying, thy will be done. The first object of prayer is not so much to speak to God as it is to listen to him. Uh, prayer doesn't change God. In fact, what prayer does is it changes us. It is putting us in line and in step with his decree. It's bringing us in line with the plans and the purposes of God. I mean, even remember in the Lord's Prayer, it is that God's will be done on, he- in, on earth as it is in heaven. It's aligning ourselves with his will and his purpose. And so this all, how we see prayer being referred to here in Revelation 8. It tells us that, that prayer is extremely important. We have to see the, imp- we sh- we're meant to see, we should see the importance of prayer from this passage. The, the devil, our flesh, and the world, they all try to convince us that prayer doesn't matter much. 
that it doesn't count for anything. And certainly the devil who was a liar is behind the wisdom of the world which our flesh is impaired by. And if you just think about it even, over recent years, it's been common to hear the word when a, a tragedy, a national tragedy happens. It's common for you know, Christians to, to then offer up prayers for those who have been impacted by these things, who are suffering. And the world often responds with something like, well, we don't want your prayers. We don't need your prayers. We'd rather have you, you, know, uh, you know, repeal the Second Amendment. You know, or, or ban all the sight rifles. That's what we want. We don't care about your prayers. Well, they act as if they don't even want our prayers, and that may very well be the case. But our prayers aren't to them, are they? They're to the Lord God Almighty, from whom our help comes. And so we pray, and we see especially here in Revelation 8, that our prayers aren't missed by God. People in this world may not want them, but God has decreed that we pray, and our prayers are a means of... God acting out his eternal plan. Prayer is important, no matter what the world thinks. And look what God thinks of them. And then, who cares what the world thinks about it? Now, I understand that prayer, that doesn't mean prayer is easy. Uh, that it, it may not even come easy. Pastor Michael Reeves notes that most of us, and he's especially noting the state of Christianity in the West, he says, you know, most of us are not good at prayer. And I myself have a number of what I would call pet peeves that I hear often that just kind of make me cringe in prayer, distracts me some. And I'm, I'm not saying this in order to discourage prayer, but in order to promote confident Christ-honoring prayer. Because prayer isn't just an emptying out of our minds and letting whatever comes out, come out. It, it, prayer is something that we really should be thinking about thinking about who God is, what he knows, how it is that he normally acts, and what he has shown to us in his word. That's the example that we're given in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, or in that other that acronym that we talked about in our um, group discussion time. And so this list of, of prayer pet peeves is not meant to be exhaustive, and maybe you can think of others. And they aren't all mistakes of the same kind. I know that I myself can be guilty of praying in a bad way from time to time in ways not even mentioned here. Um, lacking in prayer, for example, right? I mean, that's an easy one. Like, we don't pray enough when we should. That could probably be said for all of us. But these things that I do list, I don't want to do these things. But I know that none of us are perfect, myself included. And so I'm glad that God doesn't require perfect praying or heavenly praying in order for him to just to hear us. We'll talk about more of that later. But he hears all the prayers of all the saints. Again, remember what 8.3 says. It's the prayers of all the saints. And it's not that our prayers make us acceptable in God's sight. It's the righteousness of Christ that does that. It's his work of atoning for sin and the imputation of his righteousness which causes us to be justified in the sight of God and is, there, and is therefore even the reason that we are compelled to pray in the first place. It's Christians that pray. People are, the people that pray are redeemed saints. More on that in a moment. But just because those things are true and that the grace of Christ is even greater than our failed attempts at praying, there are still some common problematic ways of praying that I think could be changed if we thought about it some. It's okay to think about praying. Sometimes, you know, these things will happen on accident by well-meaning people. Sometimes people have been taught to pray in a weird way, and so you have to unlearn something. And just be reminded, by the way, that there's nothing wrong with being taught how to pray. There's nothing wrong with desiring grace and sanctification in your prayer life. 
Remember how it is that we got the Lord's Prayer even, right? The disciples approached Jesus and they said, Lord, teach us how to pray. It is because they came to him humbly and asked him that. I sometimes imagine what it must have been like to hear Jesus pray. I mean, we know he was a man of prayer. Multiple times in the gospel accounts we read of, of Jesus praying. We, we don't ever really get the content of what he's praying. But imagine hearing Jesus pray. And then imagine, I would think, your flesh making you to feel so inadequate with your own prayer life because his prayers were so good. But Jesus doesn't say, when they come up and ask him, teach us how to pray, he doesn't say, hey guys, you know, leave that to the professionals. That's not what he says to them. And he teaches them how to pray, which we should take that as, then this is the way that Christ taught the disciples how to pray. I think we're to assume that that's the same way that Christ himself prayed, within those same sort of categories that he um, gave in the Lord's Prayer. Now, again, these are my prayer pet peeves. These are, what, these are ways that I hope I don't pray myself and that I'm encouraging the church not to pray this way also. We have to unlearn some things in regard to that. And we have to be mindful of what we're doing when we pray. And this isn't everything we can say, but I just I settled at six things. So first, number one for my pet peeve, is prayer in a group setting. When that happens, one should never say that they have an unspoken prayer request. It makes absolutely no sense to do that. At the end of the day, what that does is it just gives others in the group an opportunity in their flesh to wonder about this mysterious prayer request. Something so bad, so shameful, that it couldn't be mentioned to the whole group. And it triggers in people a spirit of gossip, which isn't the point of prayer because then everybody's wondering, well, I wonder what's, you know, this unspoken prayer that so-and-so has. Now, it could be a matter of wisdom to not bring up everything in a prayer meeting with other people. I mean, if you, if you said whatever, you know, this quote unspoken prayer request is, it could damage the reputation of someone or maybe even of yourself. And so there is wisdom sometimes in not saying something but if there is wisdom there not saying anything, then instead of saying that you have an unspoken request, just don't mention it at all. The idea of an unspoken prayer, like where does that come from? Not the Bible, certainly. James, the brother of the Lord, has some instruction for us that we should heed in light of praying with other people. This is James 5, if you want to turn there. Very close to where you're, we are in Revelation. James 5.15 says, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, verse 16, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Remember, prayer is a, is a means, not saying then that every time someone is sick, if you announce that to someone and the church prays for them, then that person will automatically be healed. But God also, remember, he ordains the ends and he ordains the means as well. Whether he answers that prayer in the positive or the affirmative, that's up to the Lord. But especially note verse 16, it's confess your sins to one another. There's nothing unspoken about that. But again, there are certain things that may not be a good idea to mention in a large group setting. That's okay. It's okay for that to be the case. But you should know that there are people in your church family that you should feel comfortable sharing your prayer requests with, even ones that bring you shame. 
But that doesn't mean that everyone is that person. And here's the thing. If it's not something that could be shared in a group, rather in a big group setting, rather than just mentioning it as an unspoken and then no one really knows then how to pray for it or what to pray for, I would compel you just for you yourself to go to the Lord in prayer over it. You don't need to announce it at all. You could just pray to the Lord yourself. Now, that's even what people who are thinking about it end up doing when someone mentions they have an unspoken prayer request. That, well, they might say something like, God, we don't know what is bothering Jacob, but you do, because God does know all things. And that's kind of the point, really. God knows all things. And so a Christian can freely go to the Lord. If it's something that's too shameful, you think, to bring up in front of a whole group, you don't need to entice everyone's flesh by saying, I have this unspoken prayer request. Just go to the Lord with it yourself, privately. We're instructed to do that even. Philippians 4, verse 6 through 7, gives us instruction on, pray, on praying and, and taking our prayer requests to the Lord. Verse 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. Okay, but in everything. Again, all the prayers of the saints are before the Lord in this, uh, this altar. It says, But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let your requests be made known to God. If it's something that would cause a person to mention it as an unspoken, well, just don't mention it. Just let your request be made known to God. Bring it to God yourself, in other words. Remember the access that we have to God through Christ. We can boldly approach the throne of grace to receive mercy and grace to help in our time of need. Secondly, another prayer pet peeve would be a lack of reverence in prayer. This is something we learn every week in our group discussion time, at least in our middle school group. That we kind of, you know, the goofing off that happens during the prayer request time. But think of what we're doing. We are approaching the Lord and we're sharing with each other. And God, not that God doesn't know these things already, but we're going to the Lord together. And so we shouldn't have a lack of reverence in that. This is a learned thing, this, this lack of reverence. Mostly I'm thinking of it in another way, probably from like Caleb or emotional, heavy, effeminate, spirit-dominated churches. And the problem here, again, is that we are dealing with the God of the universe, the only God. And we're praying to the Father through the Spirit in the name of the Son. And so how we approach God does matter. There are all sorts of appropriate names to address God with. Scripture is replete with them. But when someone prays like Papa God or Daddy God, that's, that's just weird. If you wanted to pray Abba Father, that's okay. But Abba doesn't mean daddy like that once one popular song uh, made us think. Scholar Murray Harris says this. That is, Abba was not a childish term of the nursery comparable to daddy. It was a polite and serious term, yet also colloquial and familiar, regularly used by adult sons and daughters when addressing their father. Ideas of simplicity, intimacy, security, and affection attached to this household word of childlike trust and obedience. So to bring out the sense of warm and trusting intimacy that belongs to the word, we could appropriately paraphrase it as this, as dear father. It's not daddy, but it's dear father. And so we want to be careful 
that we remember what we're doing in prayer. We're seeking the will of the one true God and to be conformed to him. Yes, we are his sons and daughters now. Yes, he has saved us, redeemed us, and reconciled us to himself. But how, how we approach him matters. People need to unlearn that one about praying to God as daddy, daddy God or papa God. Third, and this one always causes me to like say a little prayer of correction in my head whenever I hear someone do it. And that's when people use the phrase, be with. I've heard pastors often request that the Lord be with others in their time of need or their various tasks. It's always be with various people for various reasons. Accordingly, the pastor will say something like, you know, be with the sick, be with the dying, be with those traveling, be with those missionaries, be with the government leaders. But what does that really mean? Such requests are empty when they go no further than that. In other words, when they're not followed by a result clause. And so consider these two statements, for example. One is better than the other. Be with the food pantry team so that they might faithfully convey your message of mercy to those that they serve this coming Saturday. That contains much more substance than simply saying, be with the food pantry, these volunteers, this Saturday. At least the former petition expresses some purpose for God's presence. The latter expression is vague and lacking in specificity. Specificity. Thank you. you My mouth is too dry to try words with that many syllables in it. And therefore, it's less meaningful in the content. And it may also reflect some laziness or thoughtlessness in the speaker to identify the specific purpose of the petition. The phrase, be with is sometimes almost used by some as like a transitionary phrase. It's like how they mark in their mind going from one request to another request. And more to the point, I don't believe that this request is appropriate theologically. Why would one pray that God be with Christians when he's already promised such in his word? Don't get me wrong here. It's good to pray God's promises. Certainly, you're in his will when you're praying praying what God has already promised. But be with blank at the start of a prayer as a transitionary device is much different than praying be with as you have promised lord for example let's say things get crazy for clint at his government job and they say that he has to renounce christ or he's going to lose uh, his job because the government now believes that christianity is hate speech and so if we were to pray lord as you know our brother Clint is, before, is going before his boss and he's seeking to glorify you. So please be with him as you promised. Help him to know what to say. Help him to be confident and bold to not deny you before them. Well, that's much different than a transitionary or blanket be with statement. And again, there's theological reasons to just stop with the empty be with phrase. Before his ascension, Jesus assured his followers in Matthew 28, 20, says, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus has promised us. He is with us always to the end of the age. At Pentecost, the promise of the indwelling presence of God, the Holy Spirit, that was bound with regeneration in Acts 2.38. The Holy Spirit, when you are born again, he's promised to always be with you. The Apostle Paul promises that nothing in life and death can separate believers from Christ, Romans 8.38-39. Indeed, Paul's whole emphasis on being quote, in Christ, assumes a constant union with Jesus, that, you, that the Christian is always in Christ, that he's always with Jesus, he's always with him. 
the writer to the Hebrews applies Yahweh's promise in Joshua 1.15 to believers. I will never leave you or forsake you, Hebrews 3.15. And so especially when we're thinking of praying for other saints, we can delete that little phrase from our prayer that requests that go to God, that say, be with his baptized people. The Lord is already with them according to his word of promise. To make this prayer is to ask for what you've already been given by the grace of God in Christ. Uh, For example, you never hear a Christian pray, please justify me before you based on the work of Christ. Why would we? We already have that. We are are praying because that's true even. And we should thank him for that justification. And we can even thank him for being with us too. Fourth, when you pray in a group setting, and the other people in the group are Christians as well, it's it's best to pray we instead of I. If you think back to the Lord's Prayer that we went over in our group discussion time, did you notice that the pronouns were always plural? Our Father. Give us. Forgive us. Now, if you're by yourself praying, then personal pronouns are fine. I pray for or I ask. Forgive me. That's appropriate. But prayer among a group of Christians should be we. It should always be we are praying this. That's why we say amen after the prayer even. It's an acknowledgement that you're praying together, that you're paying attention, and that you agree with what's been said. The same spirit that is in you is in other Christians in the group as well. It also means that when you're praying in a group setting and someone mentions a request, you don't have to mention it again. You might mention it, another aspect of prayer for that same person, But because there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all, we don't have to bring up the same request that someone else did right before we just prayed too. Because we're all praying together in that setting. And God heard them when they prayed it. So that same prayer doesn't have to be brought up again two minutes later. Because they're praying it. It's as if you just prayed it as well. Bring it up to the Father later that evening, fine. The next day, sure. But there's no technical reason to bring up a prayer request that was mentioned in the exact same way that someone else just did before you because their praying for it is as if you just prayed for it as well too. When we, may, when we pray together, be mindful that we really are together and that what one person is praying for, everyone engaged and listening is also praying that same thing and is being represented by the one praying. Hence our yes, Lord, or our amen at the end of it. Fifth, this is a fast one. We need to be careful to not accidentally be a heretic. And by that I mean sometimes when we're praying, maybe because we're just tired or you're just you're trying to think and, and, and know things that are true. And so it just accidentally happens. But it's not the Father who died for us. It's probably an accident when someone says something like that, like... Um, You know, Father, thank you for going to the cross. Well, what they really mean is, Father, thank you for Jesus who went to the cross. But it's just being careful, right? I mean, think about who actually did certain things in the Godhead. And the last pet peeve I want to mention is that we should avoid speaking as if we were teaching God about an issue. Father, so-and-so was in an accident. Father, um, James has a surgery for blockage in his heart this Friday. Well, Well, God knows these things already. He knows all things. It comes, when people do that, it comes across as if, sometimes maybe, that they're wanting their will to be done rather than God's will to be done. But that's not the point of prayer. 
Maybe people do it because they think that other people who are in the room praying with them, that they've never, they haven't heard the prayer request. And so they're trying to teach other people in the group what's going on. I get that. But if we were to simply give the prayer need rather than first informing God of it like he doesn't know about it, we mere creatures would still learn of it in the same way. God knows all things. And we shouldn't speak as if we're the ones letting him in on a problem. It's part of attributing God's glory unto himself. We never let him in on anything. He knows everything. We are wanting to align our own wills with his when we pray. Psalm 147.5 says, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Psalm 139.4 Even before a word is on my tongue, behold the Lord, you know it all together. There's nothing that we ever teach God. Now, I say all that. So I, of course, know that praying is sometimes hard. But my point this evening, again, is not to discourage prayer, but to encourage simple, godly dependence upon Christ and to have us be led by his spirit into praying more often and to praying better. I mean, we read things in scripture like, you know, pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Or you are my God, early in the morning I will seek you, Psalm 63.1. Or we hear about that, quote from Martin Luther where he says that he has so much to do that he's going to spend the first three hours of the day in prayer just to be prepared, which seems like counterintuitive to our flesh, right? Like if I have a lot to do, well, then I better not spend three hours of prayer because I have a lot to do. But Martin Luther in that pietistic statement, you know, supposedly said that. And those things, if we get caught up in our flesh, they could be defeating to us. And so we need to remember that with prayer, just like the rest of the means of grace, that we are sinners and saints at the same time, that we are Samuel Eustace at Peccador. And so that prayer is what God is working, is what God is working through to change us. We still have sin that remains in us, that we contend with, and God's purpose is to use our praying to bring about his decrees, which even includes our sanctification, includes our growth. We aren't changing ourselves through it. We aren't certainly changing God or his will. We are acted upon in prayer. But Christians are a praying people, and we should seek to pray in a faithful manner. We aren't banking our hope in praying on our own efforts and righteousness, but on the righteousness of Christ. We need to remember what kinds of praying people are in view here in Revelation 8. In verse 3 and 4 is our last category. It's the prayer of all the saints that are brought to God. Saints in light of prayer, could be described by these three verses. 1 John 5, 14 to 15. It says, And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that he hears us in whatever we ask. And, and we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Proverbs fifteen twenty nine, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. 1 Peter three twelve. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So according to Scripture, saints are people who have been saved. They have been set apart by God. It's a sanctified person, man or woman, sanctified by Yahweh and sealed for salvation. They are people who are, generally speaking, seeking God's will to be done and not their own. And so that's why when we pray according to his will, we can be assured of the promise that he hears us. And our, our prayers, they're, they're to be in light of God's will, not our own will. But only a saved person, a saint, 
seeks God's will. Not that we're perfect in doing that right. We sometimes do seek our own will, and by grace and prayer we confess and we repent from that when that happens. And then also, saints are people who are considered righteous, as we see. And how is it that a person is considered righteous before God? Uh, Because of the fall and our having Adam as our covenantal head, our federal head, we are by nature children of wrath when we are born into this world, like the rest of mankind, what Ephesians 2 says. We are only counted righteous, though, on the basis of faith in and through Christ, Romans 4. And yet, we see that God hears, as it were, the prayers of the righteous. He hears those who have been redeemed, in other words. He hears those who have been saved, who have Christ's righteousness accredited to them. We are declared righteous on the basis of what Jesus has done for us. And God hears our prayers then in that, in that, in that case. And sometimes we know even by the Spirit who lives inside of us that our efforts in prayer are lacking. Even Martin Luther, who believe, who we believe rightly saw the importance of prayer, he wasn't perfect in this. He once told his friend Philip Melanchthon, he said, You extol me so much. Your high opinion of me shames me and tortures me, since unfortunately I sit here like a fool and hardened in leisure, pray little, do not sigh for the church of God. In short, I should be ardent in spirit, but I am ardent in the flesh, in lust, in laziness, leisure, and sleepiness. Already eight days have passed in which I have written nothing, in which I have not prayed or studied. This is partly because of the temptations of the flesh, partly because I am tortured by other burdens. So if you ever feel like your prayer life stinks or your devotional life to God stinks, I mean, you're in good company. Martin Luther felt like that sometimes often. He you know, evidently backed it up. But so even as we understand that our praying isn't perfect because we're sinners and that this is an ordinance that we are to practice and grow in, we know that we are praying because we belong to God through the reconciliation given to us in Christ and the covenant of grace. That when we do pray, when we are praying, our prayers, even our shortcomings in prayer that we should be seeking to remove and and get better in, that they are even sanctified in Christ even when we don't know how to pray, right? The Spirit is growing within us to pray for us, Romans 8 tells us. And here in Revelation 8, the prayers of the saints, however holy and good they are, or however sinful and bad they are, they rest upon the altar of God, of Christ Jesus. All the merit for our prayers that is brought before God, that merit isn't, so much in our ability to pray well, though I think we should try to pray well, but the merit is in Christ's bloody atonement, which is placed upon that altar as well. He's the lamb slain who's worthy to open the scroll and its seals. We don't have any right in heaven to be heard based off of who we are, but our prayers are accepted through the merits of Christ. Remember how it is in Revelation 8 that the prayers of the saints are brought up to God along with incense? That gives us great joy and encouragement in praying, even though that our, our prayer falls short at times. Because Charles Spurgeon points out that this heavenly incense is part of what our, makes our prayers acceptable before God. It completely absorbs what is earthly, fleshly, sinful, and selfish in our prayers so that our prayers are nothing but a sweet aroma before God based on the cleansing provided to us by Christ. And so even though we all have room to grow in prayer, We can pray, 
knowing that the rich abundance of confidence that is, that is ours in Christ Jesus. We engage our minds. We, we seek to be aware of the things that we're saying in prayer. But we take great joy in the fact that our prayers are acceptable at the end of the day, even at the end of this age, all because of what Christ has done for us. Not because of our gifts in praying or our lack of gifts in praying. Thomas Brooks gives this encouragement. God looks not at the elegancy of your prayers to see how neat they are, nor the geometry of your prayers to see how long they are, but at the sincerity of your prayers, how hearty they are, as God loves a broken and contrite heart. And a broken and contrite heart is the heart of a saint, a heart that has been awakened through the gospel. Your prayers matter, friends. They're heard by the Lord. The Spirit of Christ is living in you. You can be certain that they're heard by the Lord. That doesn't mean that we can't grow in our ability to pray. We can, we should seek to. But these prayers that we do pray, they are the means by which God is bringing about his eternal decrees in this age. So take this encouragement from the psalmist, and then we'll pray. Psalm 145, 14 to 18. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you to satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do call upon you and ask for mercy that is available to us in Christ, that you would help us to be men and women who pray more, who are more careful in our prayers, who pray more along the ways in which the Lord Jesus instructed his people to pray. And so we ask, Lord, that you would help us to be fully satisfied, knowing that Christ and Christ alone is who makes us able to come before you with confidence. Nevertheless, Lord, we do pray that you would help us to be sanctified in this regard, that our prayers would be all the more effective in helping us to know your glory and helping us to be aligned with your perfect will. May you be exalted among us and in us. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, any questions? Comments and there I try to clear up. Lots more we could that could be said about prayer.